Welcome to the Worship Theology Podcast. I'm Dr. Jeremy Perigo, and in this podcast, I bring in guest theologians, scholars, musicians, Christian leaders, and together we attempt to bridge faith and ministry praxis. Worship Theology is a podcast to fuel and nurture vital discussions on worship, music, and theology. So we're so glad that you've joined us as we think deeply about Christian worship. We have a very special guest today, Dr. Simon Chan, who's a systematic theologian with particular focus on spiritual theology and liturgical theology. Today we're going to be jumping into Dr. Chan's book, Liturgical Theology, the church as worshiping community. It's a delight to to meet you, um, Dr. Chan. Simon, if I may. Yes, um, please. Yeah, yeah. Well, to, <laughs> today, yeah, we're really going to be digging into your your book, um, liturgical theology, but also some of your experience and and some of your your other works. But, but as as we just get to know you, I'd love to hear what's a memorable moment in corporate worship for you? You've been in, in, in ministry and in, in kind of teaching situations. As you think about Christian worship, what's, what's a, a time that immediately comes, comes to mind? I can think of two very uh, specific events in my life that changed the way I uh, understand worship and practice worship. One was uh, uh, an event that took place uh, more than 50 years ago uh, at my baptism. I was a teenager. And uh, I recall that uh, our church was a Pentecostal church and uh, we had our evening service on Sunday. You know? It's like the, the southern states, you know, where you have your evening service. We, 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 we had that carried over by missionaries. And uh, yeah. after my baptism in the afternoon, we went back to church for our evening service. And that was one of the most memorable experiences in my life because that was the service when I experienced the assurance of salvation. And looking back, I realized, in fact, at that point in time, I realized that it had something to do with my baptism. I, I couldn't figure it out, but I, I, I knew that it had something to do with my baptism. You see, before that, I had been having problem of, you know, uh, uh, being assured of whether I'm really saved or not. You know, every once in a while, I'll go through the sinner's prayer. You know, and you know, uh, for a little while, I'll be uh, uh, quite certain that you know I'm a child of God. But after a while, you know that the nagging question keeps coming back to me. You know, am I really saved? Yeah. And so you know, I'll go through the process again. You know, just to make sure I'll repeat the sinner's prayer. And this went on for quite a while. But on that service, or in that service. Somehow I received that assurance that I, you know, was a child of God. God spoke to me. And since that time, I had no doubt about my assurance of salvation. And I, yeah, as I've I said, love, I, I, I believe that, that I, it has it, something it, to do with, you know, um, my baptism. I didn't realize that baptism was working in my life as a sacrament long before I even heard of that term, sacrament. You know, 
The reformers spoke of the sacrament as sign and seal of faith. And that was what I experienced. And it was years later that I discovered the language to articulate that experience I had. So that was one very uh, unforgettable experience in my life. Yeah. The other was when I was studying in the uh, UK. I attended an evangelical Anglican church. And for the first time, I appreciated the power of the liturgy, the way in which the liturgy, uh, you know, <clears throat> manifests the, the fullness of God to me. Um, I encountered God in His awesomeness, in His holiness that I had never encountered before. You know, in our Pentecostal church, our emphasis tends to be on, you know, the nice side of God, so to speak. Uh, the, you know, uh, when we come to church, you ought to be happy, and uh, you, you, you know, the, the music is upbeat and all that. I mean, all this is well and good, but it was in the liturgical service, and at that time, uh, the alternative service book was used. Uh, in the 1980 alternative service book. Uh, and it was over a period, of, a period of time that I began to appreciate how the liturgy deepened my relationship with God, something that, that I never really experienced before. Although I studied liturgical theology, by the way, when I was in a high church Anglican seminary in the Philippines, I never quite appreciated the liturgy the way I did when I actually went to an, uh, an Anglican church in Cambridge. So those are two moments in my life that I could yeah. not forget. Both of them are, are great setups, too, for our, our conversation and, and your work in liturgical theology. <laughs> I'd love to, to know, before we jump into that, what, what initially got you into studying theology? What, what provoked you to... Say, hey, I'm going to, I'm, I'm, I'm not only going to love God and serve God in in in, in ministry, but I I want to I want to know God. I want to know the, the deep history of the church. I want to understand liturgy and things like that. What provoked you to to kind of academic study of theology? Yeah, I my journey into theology was a long and perhaps a <laughs> circuitous one. Uh, my interest in liturgy came much later in uh, you know, the whole course of my spiritual journey. Uh, my interest in theology began when, uh, after finishing my basic uh, Bible school training, I was asked by my home church to go to a, a pastor, a pioneering work. And uh, about 50 years ago, uh, you know, that part of Singapore was considered rural Singapore. You can't imagine Singapore being rural. But 50 years ago, there were parts of Singapore that were rural. And uh, the, the people that uh, I ministered to mainly uh, came from farming families. And, um, of course, as farmers, you know, uh, I... 
had to do my pastoral work usually in the evening when they are finished with their work. Yeah. If you come from a rural community, I think you'll understand that. That's why they have that evening evangelistic service, right? Yeah. <laughs> in, in those uh, you know, farming communities, agricultural communities. Well, it was something similar. And so I, most of my days were free. So I used my days in reading theological books. Hmm. And that was when my interest in theology began. I started getting interested in Reformed theology, but over time I moved beyond that. You know? And so I've come to appreciate uh, a more Catholic, with a small c, you know? a more Catholic understanding of the church. Yeah. And, uh, yeah. But that's uh, you know, a journey that uh, uh, I, I, I came to uh, late in the later part of my life. Oh yeah, I love I love that picture of the the rural life of of Singapore. I I I'm it's for another conversation. I'm curious on the yeah. the massive global shifts that have happened in the last fifty years. But well, this yeah. this podcast is really for yeah for worship leaders those serving in 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 a variety of church contexts and also for some of my undergrad and master's students that I I work with and I I know many of them are particularly if they're from a non-denominational or free church experience, they've never heard the word liturgical theology. They've heard the word theology maybe maybe every few Sundays or, again, in their first first intro to theology class. But what what's liturgical theology, Dr. Chan? What's, what, what is that term? Can you define that for us? Yeah. Um, there are many ways to look at it, but I would like to... Um, uh, explain liturgical theology um, in two ways. We can think of liturgical theology in the plural. Liturgical theologies, yeah, referring to um, the many different traditions with the specific theologies that are embedded in their specific liturgical traditions. These are liturgical theologies that come out of, say, you know, uh, various uh, denominational backgrounds. Yeah. Uh, but we can also think of liturgical theology in the singular. And in my book, my emphasis is more on liturgical theology in the singular. And that is to say that there is a certain uh, basic shape of the liturgy. Sometimes liturgical theologians call these the deep structure of the liturgy. And within this deep structure, there, there are certain theological givens which shape that liturgy over a long period of time so that the liturgy over at least two millennia or more remained more or less stable. Yeah. And this is the liturgical theology I'm concerned about. And basically, you can break it down to two components, namely word and sacrament. And I think that when we get these together and make that you know, the structure of our worship, I think we have come to the heart of liturgical theology. 
Of course, we can expand on word and sacrament and the relationship between the two and all that. But that basic structure uh, embeds a basic theology. Yeah. Hmm. And that's what I mean by liturgical theology. So you're really paying it's the attention. It's theology of word and sacrament. Paying it, basically. Yeah, paying att attention to the historical structure and how that helps us know, know God, know, is, is that what you're, yeah, what you're saying? Like how, how we pay attention to how, how word and table or word and sacrament are, are brought together within corporate worship and how that enables us to be formed, to, to know God, to proclaim who he is and to experience God. Would that be fair? Yes, yes. But um, uh, to be more specific, I think that within that basic structure of word and theology, we have uh, a specific basic content, namely uh, the, the word focuses on the revelation of God as Trinity, the triune God. And that revelation comes about through the coming of Jesus Christ and his work of redemption. It's through the coming of Jesus that we know that God as Trinity. Yeah. Eventually, that is. You know, the, the, the doctrine of the Trinity evolved over time. Yeah. But um, it's through his work, the Father sending the Son, that we come to know who God really is. He is the triune God. And that, in fact, is what we encounter in our liturgical celebration. And this is why you find that uh, Trinitarian language, Trinitarian allusions and all that pervade the entire liturgy. There's a strong Trinitarian theology. There's a strong emphasis on uh, the gospel of Jesus Christ. Yeah. And so, when we immerse ourselves in the liturgy, we are immersing ourselves into something very basic about who God is. Yeah. We are encountering God in accordance with the revelation of Himself as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So, yeah, so often I think in, in particularly, again, the non-denominational free church and even some of the reformed movements, there's the view of, yeah, of, of us applying scripture and Bible and, to, to our worship. And so there's so much emphasis on taking what we see in scripture and then applying it to, to, to worship. And so, you know, we may look at the content of worship songs or hymns and, and kind of set that against scripture. And I, 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 I think that's important. It's valid. Um, it's important to, to have biblical content in our worship and also go back to scripture as our, our rule for life. But I, I think I appreciate one of the things, and I, I think I struggled with it initially, but, but one of the things you, you kind of bring up, a tagline throughout the book, is that bad worship produces bad theology. And bad theology produces an unhealthy church. You, 
you look at the the liturgical um, approach, like Robert Weber, like others that kind of that uh, lex orandi, lex credendi, that how how the rule of prayer, the rule of worship, um, feeds into our theology. And I guess I I I think it's important, particularly for us for for worship leaders, um, to to look at what we do, how we do, how it's structured. Um, I'd love love for you to maybe maybe reflect on that or a little bit un- unpack how not only applying scripture to worship is important, but also paying attention to how worship is is helping us know God and whether that's yeah good or bad or whether our approaches um, need some some renewal or some some redirection. Well, as I've said, if if the liturgy really. Uh, uh, yeah, it is a is a form of worship in which we encounter God in His revelation as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Then, that very encounter with the Triune God already uh, carries with it a certain knowledge of who God is. So in that very act of encountering the triune God, we are already knowing God for who He is. We are knowing a a primary theology, a theology that is presented within the liturgy and through our practice of the liturgy. And this is uh, why I think it is very vital to ensure that you know, uh, we observe the liturgy uh, in, the, in the singular sense that I mentioned earlier on, in order that our theology be truly Trinitarian, be truly uh, an encounter with God and His work in the persons of Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit, particularly in the events concerning the life and the person of Jesus Christ. And so in our act of worship, we are already engaging in practicing a a, a theology, a theology that is grounded in divine revelation. And I think that that is very critical and that's what uh, I, I mean when I say that good worship will you know, result in good theology. Because when we, when we engage in that kind of liturgy, we are, we are engaging in knowing who God truly is as He reveals Himself to us in Scripture. I, I've... I've yeah, again, loved loved engaging with your work over the years, and as, as I said earlier, I usually in a, a number of classes require that. So that's been students in London, students in Re- Regent Virginia Beach, and even here at Dort. Um, 
often when my students kind of, if they're doing a book review or, or a, a discussion post about, about your text, they think you're either Anglican, Orthodox, or maybe Roman Catholic, big, big C. And they're surprised <laughs> when I maybe respond and say, um, Simon's Pentecostal or Assemblies of God and writes, writes a lot on kind of Pentecostal theology and, and spirituality too. How, how are you able in some sense, um, to, to maybe flow in multiple streams or, um, yeah, or to bring maybe renewal or redirection to, to evangelical and Pentecostal streams. Uh, what, what does that look like maybe in, in your own, own life, but also in your, in your, in your thinking and your, your theology? Yeah, I, I find that at least in my own life, I have no problem uh, upholding um, you know, our basic Pentecostal faith and practice. Yeah. I'm still a Pentecostal card-carrying Assemblies of God minister. <laughs> In fact, I've been ordained for 40 years as an Assemblies of God minister. And uh, a couple of weeks ago, I was uh, given life membership in the Assemblies of God of Singapore. Uh, and I, I find that my Pentecostal belief and practice can actually be enriched through the liturgy. And that was what I experienced when I went to that Anglican church I mentioned about when I was in the UK. That the liturgy actually helped me to see God and experience and encounter God in a much deeper way than I had encountered him before. And it actually enriched, deepened my Pentecostal faith and practice. So I don't have any problem with, you know, a lot of these uh, things that are associated with Pentecostals, like speaking in tongues and all that, I still practice speaking in tongues. And um, I, I don't see that as incompatible with the liturgical celebration. It, it, it's just a, a different, uh, they, 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 are, they come together. Uh, and they uh, um, find expressions in you know different uh, aspects of life. Yeah. Well, well, Simon, you're you're a systematic theology theologian, and you know a lot of systematic theologians I I know write on soteriology or atonement theory or you know even pneumatology, but you're. You're writing a lot on the intersection of liturgy, ecclesiology, and spirituality, which which sometimes feel like you're you're a unicorn and or a rare gem in in the in the systematic um, world. Um, as as in this book, liturgical theology, you write there's no separation between the liturgy and the church. To be the church is to be the worshiping community, making a normative response to the relation. Of the triune God, as as a theologian, um, particularly coming from that systematic uh, field, can you explain why and how 
liturgical theology impacts, or maybe even I think you're saying defines our ecclesiology, our, our view of the church? Well, actually, what I'm saying is not really anything new. It goes really way back to uh, what the reformers themselves have uh, been saying. Um, let's take Calvin's definition of the church you know, as an example, and you can name a lot of others. What is a church? He says, where the word of God is purely preached and the sacraments rightly administered according to Christ's ordinance, there the church of God exists. Yeah. The church is constituted by word and sacrament. And word and sacrament also are the basic shape of our worship. So in worship of word and sacrament, we are actually practicing church. So that you cannot quite separate true worship of word and sacrament and the church. To be church is to be a community that worships God through word and sacrament. So there's a long and short of the connection between liturgy and the church. Yeah, you're, but you're defining this ontologically, like what it means to be the church is to be a worshiping community. And, and in some sense, that sounds like, yeah, of course, that's what the reformers, but I think particularly around, yeah, as we look at modern evangelicalism, um, often they're arguing for a very simple church. Um, and even the word liturgy or liturgical is, is antithetical or shocking, or they're defining themselves against the liturgy or against, um, yeah, liturgical sensibilities and often drawing from scripture itself. So Matthew 18, 20, you, I know you've talked about in articles or Acts 2, 42 to 47 about just this, what looks like a simple gathering of, of believers. Um, is there a kind of reductionist view sometimes around worship for, for evangelicals? Uh, is, yeah, is that kind of simple church view limited? Or, yeah, help me unpack um, that. I, I think whether we like it or not, you know, our reading of scriptures uh, is very much colored by our cultural conditioning. Evangelicals are conditioned by their culture. And so they tend to highlight certain features in the scriptures that seem to conform to their own cultural conditioning. Yeah. Um, many of them came out of, you know, because of the modernist uh, fundamentalist controversies in the uh, 19th century. Uh, I think the evangelicals, or at that time the fundamentalists, uh, made the mistake of, you know, identifying the liturgy with liberalism, identifying the liturgy with mainline denominations that had gone liberal. And so what they essentially had done was to throw away the baby with the bathwater. And uh, they opted for what you described as a simple, a kind of unadorned kind of uh, worship. But the truth of the matter is that uh, they have failed to understand you know, uh, that 
In the history of Christian worship, if you go back into the New Testament itself, I mean, any uh, liturgical uh, historian will tell you that, that the, the first Christians were Jews. They were grounded in Old Testament forms of worship, in temple worship, in synagogue worship, in the uh, observance of the various feasts and the uh, liturgical hours of prayer, things like that. And we have good reason to believe that the, the first Christians who were Jewish Christians did not just throw away everything from their own background. They came from that background. They adapted uh, from their own background as Jews. For example, if you read the book of Acts carefully, you'll find that you know, the liturgical hours, the Jewish liturgical hours were mentioned in various places. Like the day of Pentecost happened at the ninth, uh, no, the third hour, right? Yeah. In the morning. That was the hour of prayer. Yeah. Peter had a vision, remember, concerning the household of, I mean, uh, you know, uh, that led him to Cornelius' household. Yeah. When was kind that? Of the sheet, sheet coming hour. down, eat, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, that's right. And that was yeah, yeah. the hour of prayer. You see, Peter was actually observing the Jewish uh, liturgical hours. And we have such instances in, in, in the book of Acts and other parts of the, of the New Testament that shows that what the early Christians did was not so much to just develop their own you know, uh, form of liturgy in a very simple way or you know, unadorned way. Uh, they came from their own, they, they, they built uh, on what they had come out from, of. They adapted, no doubt. And here's where the cultural aspect comes in. For example, they changed the, the day of worship from the uh, seventh day to the first day. See, that was a major shift. Yeah. But they did that, of course, for good theological reasons. Yeah. The day of the resurrection became the defining uh, moment for the early Christians. So the first day of the week became the day of worship. Yeah. And this goes all the way back to, uh, you know, uh, New Test uh, to the New Testament. So to speak about a simple kind of uh, uh, worship, I, I think it's just a, a very romanticized version of the Old uh, I mean, of the of worship in the New Testament. It, it, in a sense, it ignores, yeah, ignores sometimes the cultural influences, as you were saying, of of New Testament Christians, of the first Christians, their cultural influences, Precisely. but also ignores our cultural influences. That right. there, there's what we call simple wor worship. Um, it's probably even in the in an evangelical megachurch is probably much more complex in in what we're doing, what we're saying, how we're doing that than first century believers. And I, I appreciate you, again, pushing us back to word and table and pushing us back to Trinitarian worship. And I think that's that's one of those key things that at, at, at a 
basic level, like the style of a service could be very, very different. I've spent a lot of time in the Middle East and a lot of my research and and uh, personal ministry has been in um, first generation communities who are house churches who do have a very, you know, simple approach um, to to church. But again, their their worship can have a, actually a very deep liturgical tradition or a liturgical um, theology as as they come weekly to the Lord's table, as they come and proclaim who Christ is in word, um, and then also gather together and are drawn by Father, Son, and Spirit. And in some sense, yeah, I, I appreciate this this desire to go for for the evangelicals to go back to scripture, to understand what what worship was for the first century. But I think often we can overlook or ignore some of those influences and our own tradition in in worship, what's been passed down for the for the past few few decades. Yeah. That's right. You 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 and, go uh, a little deeper. In your book, you go a little deeper, maybe, and this is probably where some of my students that are, that come from those traditions react. Like, hey, is this is where's this guy coming from? Is he is he really Pentecostal? <laughs> and you write it this way: Evangelical Christianity needs to address its severe liturgical deficits. It needs a liturgical theology that coherently explains the true meaning of worship and effectively realizes a true primary theology. When modern evangelical charismatic churches arbitrarily construct their worship to cater to human needs and whims, they're doing primary theology, but it's a false theology. What's I, we've we've kind of been hitting around this issue, but I, I'd love to try to pin pin you to the wall. You're a systematic theologian. What's the true meaning of of corporate worship? Well. When we gather in Jesus' name to celebrate word and sacrament, that is what the reformers understand the church to be. Uh, we are constituted the church. Yeah. So the church is not a static structure, it's a dynamic gathering. In fact, it is in the act of gathering that we are constantly being reconstituted, so to speak, as the Church of Jesus Christ. Uh, we are re being reconstituted as a living tradition. Uh, so, a, a vital liturgy is something that's, you know, uh, really alive, it's living, it's not just going through a form. I think a lot of uh, evangelicals misunderstand the nature of the liturgy. They think that it's just a set form that you repeat week after week. The truth of the matter is that from a sociological point of view, even the non-liturgical traditions or those who do not uh, claim to be liturgical in their worship uh, do have a certain fixed pattern uh, after a period of time. It's just that that pattern is unwritten. But it's still a pattern of worship. Yeah. So sociologically speaking, uh, they do have a liturgy. It's just that they don't call it such. Okay. So we might as well come to face it squarely that it's better to have a liturgy that is clearly grounded in scripture, in divine revelation, than one that is simply invented. Um, maybe to uh, 
meet certain needs, uh, to address certain uh, uh, modern situations. Now, I, I do believe in contextualizing the liturgy, yes. But I also recognize that if we do not have this stable structure, the givens, the theological givens, then we can easily become a victim of our culture, especially our fallen culture. And our worship simply reflects the fallenness of our culture. And this is what I see very problematic in many of these uh, charismatic services. Um, a lot of them are not even aware that uh, they are actually uh, reflecting, for example, in their, in their songs, the individualism of modern culture. Many of their songs are just about my experience of God. They don't realize the importance of, as Peter puts it, uh, proclaiming or declaring the mighty acts of God who, had, who called us out of darkness. Uh, yeah. And uh, uh, that's a corporate act. You are a royal generation, a holy priesthood, and so forth. And uh, if, if we are not governed by these basic biblical uh, givens in our worship, then we can easily become a victim of you know, whatever happens to be fashionable. This is why I, I'm, I'm fearful of, of, of churches that are constantly trying to reinvent worship changing its form every once in a while uh, because of what they perceive to be changing needs or changing concerns and all that. But the, the central message is lost. And, and, and this, this is the worrying trend. One of the assignments I often give students, and this isn't my idea, but it comes from John Whitfleet, Constance Cherry, Robert Weber, others, like pay attention to even those first words of worship, what's first said over the microphone, and kind of look at the at the direction of, of yeah, is it, is it saying that God, the Father, is drawing us into worship, or is it saying that, hey, you individually, personally, jump to your feet, shout, dance, um, work up, you know, kind of an individual personal expression. And, and not that there's, it's, it's great to express our love and devotion through, through shouting and dancing and, and, and song and prayer. But, but often these churches, yeah, we're describing um, that even that moment of gathering really isn't um, initiated by by God, by Father, Son, Spirit, but by our own action. And I, I think it's fascinating to see students who, yeah, maybe maybe read a book like yours and think, oh, this isn't isn't for me. But when we start to get to the the specific acts of worship and their their direction, are they 
God-centered or are they, they God-revelation to us and are they sh- shared in a way? And I think there's, there's where some of those deficits of, of theology and practice of worship really become evident. Um, other, and other places, Lester Ruth did a, you may be very f- familiar with this, did, yes. did some work on worship, worship songs in the 1980s to kind of late, late 90s and just found so few of them named Father, Son, Spirit. Like so few of them were, were Trinitarian, at least the most popular ones. Of course, people were singing great hymns too, but the, the most popular songs of that time. And also the, the main actor of worship was us was was the church was the individual person and as you said as, as and as peter said and as as is the psalms and other parts of scripture declare god is the actor the performer the the one um active in worship and i i do think that's that's a shift for many within the the evangelical or the the pentecostal charismatic is that yeah. we yeah, yeah our our focus is here I am to worship or I will give you all my praise rather than come. There's a, a father drawing you. He's there's a spirit right. wooing you into the, into the house of the Lord um, and Christ's we're responding yes. to Christ's acts. Yeah. Of sal- his act of salvation at the cross and his, his ascension in return. That's right. Yeah. yeah. I, I, what, one of the other things that I, I want to, want to, want to, talk to you about is is this idea of of flexibility to the order and style of corporate worship you mentioned contextualization um you yeah i i think in in some sense when when someone reads a book like this or even a book similar from robert weber or others they feel like yeah the the order of of worship has to be anglican or has to be orthodox and I, I'm I'm curious: Is there a place for flexibility in the order and style of corporate worship? And I kind of want to bring up two two points or two possibilities, and have you have you reflect? I'd love to hear your thoughts on. And first is is that yeah. con- is the contextual artistic expression, and that I in, in my mind how I'm defining that is really the evangelical missional approach that. They want to use contextual art forms, um, contextual style, contextual structures, things they see within culture and society to help, you know, um, lower the gap between those who are, who are followers of Jesus and those who aren't yet followers. And so, yeah, much of, much of the last 100, 200 years, maybe some trace that to Finney and, and the kind of frontier evangelism of, of utilizing corporate worship as, as a contextual artistic expression for mission. And so that's one maybe kind of what Lester Ruth calls one river of worship over the last you know few decades. The other would be the Pentecostal charismatic and the inbreaking of of the spirit through the gifts and not, not the spirit's activity in the liturgy as, as, as liturgists and theologians and worship leaders and communities have come together to define a, a a pre pre um, service liturgy. But as you mentioned, speaking in tongues and other things where, where God's a relational God and, active at times in spontaneous ways if we pay if we pay attention and i guess i'd love that there's a lot there but but i'd love to just hear some of your res- 
reflections on that flexibility to the order as we look at maybe some of the liturgical contributions or liturgical theologies of these two movements, a very missional, let's, let's help people meet Jesus for the first time through worship, or let's see what the Spirit's doing right now at 10 a.m. as we meet together on a, on a Sunday morning. Is there, is there a place for that flexibility in, in, in corporate worship? Um, well, there's a lot to be said about, uh, you know, uh, the, the, you know these uh, issues. Um, I, I'd just like to put it this way. Um, I believe that the liturgy, uh, first of all, although there are many liturgical traditions, uh, but you will find that um, there, there's still a basic structure uh, that's very similar, in fact, uh, in, in, the, in the various uh, liturgical traditions, whether it's Protestant, Catholic, or Orthodox. There's still a basic structure that's very similar if you examine them very carefully. Yeah. Uh, there may be some uh, slight shifts here and there, but the basic structure is still there. In fact, uh, Jeffrey Wainwright, in his work on, on worship, uh, have argued that the liturgy is probably the most promising way of, uh, uh, you know, furthering uh, real ecumenism because of the of the similarity in the worship structures of the various Christian traditions. Yeah. So that's one thing. In other words, there is a basic template for worship that can be adapted. Yeah. And I believe that any kind of worship needs to, if there's any uh, adaptation, it needs to adapt from that basic template or using that basic template. Yeah. And I think that that is very critical. And with, if we follow that basic template, I believe that it's very possible to then incorporate other elements. Yeah. For example, uh, even the Pentecostal dimension of worship yeah, into that liturgical template. Uh, in an essay in a book uh, that was published about two years ago titled Pentecostal Theology and Ecumenical Theology, I'll show it to you, uh, published by Brill. I'm not sure whether you've seen this one. Uh, it's uh, edited by the late Peter Hawking, Tony Ritchie, and Christopher Stevenson, published in 2020. I have an essay in here which addresses this question of how the Pentecostal dimension of worship can be fruitfully, effectively incorporated into a traditional liturgy. For example, there is a place in the liturgy where uh, the worshippers sing the Gloria in Excelsis. Yeah. And it's a hymn that's standard, you know, sung every Sunday except during Lent and during Advent. Yeah. And that is a time, uh, this is basically a song of adoration. And I believe that here is a place where, you know, if uh, a time could be set aside where, you know, 
before or after the singing of the Gloria, we could actually open the congregation to a time of free expression of worship, of adoring God. So the Pentecostal uh, emphasis on freedom of expression can actually be incorporated into that component of worship. I know of some churches that practice divine healing, especially in connection with the observance of the Eucharist. Yeah. During the Eucharistic celebration, when people come to receive the communion, they could also be ministered to through the laying on of hands. And I've observed, actually, uh, churches doing that. So these are just examples of how uh, some of our Pentecostal practices can actually be incorporated into uh, a standard liturgical service without disrupting the order of the service. Okay. I, I, yeah, so, I love that that constructive approach of, of looking through these, these historic structures, these biblical structures, and also finding, finding space and elements to maintain the liturgical distinctives of, of these different communities too. I think that's right. such a beautiful picture of, of drawing from the rich tradition that we have, but also it, the the big tra the great tradition i guess might be another way to uh, the big tradition but also drawing from our own cultural stories from different streams denominations and expressions that's yeah such right. a beautiful picture right um in fact if you look at some of the uh, liturgical churches in 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 an african setting you will find that the, the basic structure is observed, but then it is observed with a great deal of freedom of expression, yeah? with a lot of bodily movement, yeah? Yeah. even dancing, for example, yeah. Yeah. which is very much a part of the African soul. Yeah. And I've seen that happening. I, I think it's beautiful. Yeah. Where their own culture finds expression in their liturgy. And yet, it is still basically a, a liturgical template that's shared with other traditions. Yeah. I, I think it's, it's yeah, so vital to remind, particularly those non-denominational churches that we've been talking about, or those churches that consider themselves non-liturgical, free churches, to to pay attention to the structure and the content of their worship. I think that's, if there's anything I want my students and those, those who are listening who are from those traditions as, as they hear this conversation, um, is, is to pay, yeah, pay significant attention because there is, as you said, a, a liturgy and within those services that are considered non-liturgical. There's still weekly orders and practices and those teach us those form us those those help shape us over over time and yeah i really appreciate this re redirection maybe uh, that, that you're helping helping bring i'm i'm curious on the flip side though is from from kind of those those churches that that are more liturgical um and and come from that historical tradition are there contributions from 
the evangelical or, or Pentecostal theologies or worship practices that might enhance <laughs> the liturgical streams? I guess I, I, much of your work, I know, again, is particularly liturgical theology is towards, towards the evangelical charismatic church and, and kind of a redirection. But I'm, I'm curious if we'd, we'd flip that, would there be the things about Pentecostal spirituality or evangelical, um, yeah, contextualization or artistic expression that, that might help, um, bring renewal within the more liturgical contexts? Yes. Um, I think that the, um, uh, the charismatic renewal within the Catholic Church is a good example of how uh, the liturgy is faithfully observed, and yet many of those who uh, experienced the uh, filling of the Spirit or in, 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 in the Catholic uh, term renewal are able to um, uh, participate in the liturgy you know in a much more uh, vitalized way so the renewal actually helped them to appreciate and to actually uh, appropriate the liturgy uh, and to make it their own uh, rather than sim simply a, a ritual that they observe. So the renewal actually does something to enrich their own uh, participation in their liturgy. And uh, that's something I've observed among the uh, Catholic charismatics. Yeah. Uh, they didn't just throw away the, the, the liturgy. They actually brought the renewal that they experienced into the liturgy and actually contribute to uh, the, the vitalization of the liturgy. I can uh, remember so Kill, I, I Kill, that, Kill, Killian McDonald's uh, particularly book on Christian initiation. Um, I think you've, yeah. in, in one of your articles, you cite, you cite that that. I don't. I don't remember the, the the reason you cited it, but it as as you were sharing right there. I think not only do do does it bring renewal of something fresh to those those movements, but it also in in his book it reminded him of something very ancient: the initiation rites for baptism and the the anointing with with oil for the reception of the spirit and the gifts of the spirit and something that was deeply within his tradition, but maybe has been forgotten and so that kind of revival reformational ap approach pointed back to something that was within that tradition but is maybe neglected and i think that's also one of the right. key things around renewal is that um it reminds us to go go back to what we did at first <laughs> yes yes that's very true yeah i i I'm glad that you mentioned Killian McDonald's because I think that yeah, he helps us to appreciate that some of the early practices were actually quite, uh, we might say, quite vital. Uh, baptism was not just an ordinary rite. It was something where there was an expectation that the Holy Spirit would come and, and do some real transforming work in people's lives. And that's what Pentecostals have been talking about all this while. Uh, 
So I, I think that that's a, uh, an important contribution that Pentecostals can make to the liturgical tradition. Yeah. Such a, a fascinating conversation. I'd love to spend hours with you, and and thank thank God for your your articles and books that we can we can actually do that. We can draw draw from 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 what God's done in you, and also in your rich theological reflection and your contribution to the academy. I'd love to just wrap up with one final question. What what encouragement do you have for? leaders of worship, church musicians, or, or even new, you know, students that are studying theology and worship? Yeah, I, I think that um, for all the, all, all the people that you mentioned, you know, people uh, preparing for pastoral ministry, worship leaders, church musicians, students of theology, I would say that first, acquaint yourself with the basic components of the liturgy. Yeah. Study the liturgy. Know what it means. Yeah. Know its underlying theology. Yeah. Appreciate the essential elements yeah, that are in the liturgy that are probably missing in many of our so-called contemporary worship today. For example, I, I've noticed that in many of the uh, modern church services, uh, the service tends to be very upbeat from beginning to end, and I've hardly encountered uh, any of the services where there is a place where people can be silent before God. There's no place for confession of sin, no corporate confession. It's all just, uh, you, you get the impression that the Christian life is always a happy one. Yeah. Uh, it adopts what I call the concert model for, of worship, where the people leading worship are more like the, the performers. And uh, they are coaxing the people to just, you know, get excited about, you know, worshipping God. But there are some vital elements that are missing. In their attempt to get people to be involved, they have missed out some very important components. In many churches, especially in the contemporary service, I noticed that there is no place for intercessory prayer as well. Yeah. There's a lack of awareness about the larger world, even when we gather together. So there are these missing components that I think we need our leaders to know. And, and that is one, one, one thing. The other thing is that if you study the Eucharistic prayers of any of the churches, whether it's Catholic, Orthodox, or some of the mainline Protestant churches. I must say that not all mainline Protestant churches uh, have good uh, liturgical prayers, I must say. You know, some of them that have gone into experimental liturgies and all that, you know, I, I have serious doubts about their approach, frankly. Uh, it's more ideologically driven than theologically driven. So I have problems with those. 
But other than those, I think that if you look at most of the standard Eucharistic prayers, you'll find that there is a rich theology in, in their Eucharistic prayers. Yeah. Focusing, for example, on God as the Father of creation. And this has a lot of ecological implications. God as Father and Creator. Yeah. And then, in the communion prayer itself, the, the emphasis on how we are formed as the body of Christ, as a corporate body, I think that there's a kind of thing that's very much missing in uh, many of the contemporary uh, worship services. So, study the Eucharistic prayers, study the underlying theologies, and I believe that when we become aware of what is important uh, in our worship, what is theologically significant, then we must try to find ways to bring this back into our church. Uh, I find that in many modern uh, church services, the Eucharist has become more or less like an appendix in the service. You know, something that's to be done with and hurriedly, you know, uh, uh, you know put aside. And you know, we want to go to so-called more important things. You know? And I think that they are missing a lot of things. When the when the Lord's Supper is marginalized. But very interestingly, a number of recent Pentecostal scholars, going back to their own early histories, have discovered a very strong sacramental theology or practice in the observance of the Lord's Supper. And uh, I'm not sure if you are familiar with the works of uh, people like Daniel Tomberlin from the Church of God Seminary. Uh, Chris Green. Yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, they have done some very important work in retrieving uh, from their own early uh, traditions the centrality of the Eucharistic celebration. Yeah. And uh, I, I think that the modern church needs to recover that. And uh, modern worship leaders, especially. And, and, and future pastors uh, need to recognize the uh, importance of the liturgy in forming the way that they do things. Uh, I, I think there needs to be a paradigm shift when the, the liturgy provides the template for their worship. Uh, we were moved we will move away from what I call the, the concert model to what I call the dramatic model, where every participant, whether the people uh, on the platform or the people in the pews, every participant is actually an actor in the liturgical drama. We are only acting in different capacities, but we are all enacting the drama of redemption. And once we shift the paradigm from the concert to the drama model, 
I think that is going to affect the way we conduct our worship. We may still continue on with you know whatever structure we have, but the paradigm shift would mean that our focus, the focus of the worship leader is not so much to motivate people to worship God, but they are actually part of the uh, or one of the actors in the, litur in the liturgical drama where they are proclaiming the revelation of God and the people serve in responding to that revelation. That is a revelation-response dynamic, revelation-encounter dynamic that is being portrayed in the worship. And so the focus shifts away from people and personality to God. Worship then truly becomes God-directed rather than directed towards people. And I think that this paradigm shift needs to be made if contemporary worship is to you know, salvage itself from being sucked into you know, this uh, 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 to, to, to our modern highly individualistic culture. So that's the challenge I want to give to those people, uh, everyone who is you know, uh, preparing themselves to lead in worship, uh, either as musicians, worship leaders, or pastors. Simon, I, I appreciate so much your, your challenge. I also appreciate that you've given some great resources and some language and words to help us understand, um, discern, and even begin to nurture worship renewal in our own own context. So just thank you so much for this this great, delightful feast we've had today, but also for for your contributions to the church and the academy. It's a real treat to to meet you and to be able to talk with you about your work today. It's been nice talking to you, Jeremy. Thanks for listening today and a special thanks to the Calvin Institute of Christian Worship for their support of this podcast.